The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Great, Father. Good to see you. Man. Yes, you too. Absolutely. Father, uh, if we could return to the email inbox tonight. We are slowly trying to work our way through all the emails in there. We have a lot of great emails and I apologize it's taken so long to respond to so many of them, but um, we could dive right in. Tonight we have uh, a first email all the way from a viewer in England, so we're certainly very thankful for that. And uh, he says, Father, that uh, he rejects the positions of baptism of desire and baptism of blood, and uh, invincible ignorance as well. And so he asked, Father, he said he's heard that a traditional priest would refuse someone in his position, uh, the sacraments, Holy Communion, Confession, the other sacraments, and uh, that a traditional Catholic priest would consider him outside of the Catholic Church. Uh, so he asked, Father, yourself, the Society of St. Pius V, uh, would they consider someone who rejects these positions as outside of the Catholic Church and refuse the sacraments to them? Well, would we consider him outside the church in the sense of being excommunicated? Well, I mean, that's another question, really. Uh, uh, would he be um, actually professing the Catholic faith? Not certainly in its entirety. I mean, we're, we're bound as Catholics to accept the Catechism of the Council of Trent. And the Catechism of the Council of Trent was actually produced by decree of the Council itself. You know, it, it uh, first appeared uh, under the authority of St. Pius V in uh, 1566, first edition. And in the Catechism of the Council of Trent, the very 50, first edition, 1566, uh, bearing the authority of St. Pius V under the, uh, the heading of Baptism of Adults, the Catechism does state very clearly that uh, the Church is... Uh, does not feel the necessity of baptizing adults immediately, adult converts, as quickly as it seeks to baptize babies, because the church has the conviction that the adult's intention to receive the sacrament of baptism, coupled with the adult's contrition for sin, will avail an adult of the, the uh, not only sanctifying grace, but also will, will justify, obtain for them the justification of sin and also the grace of God. If, for some reason, uh, through no fault of their own, they die before they're able to be baptized. If they're not able to receive the waters of baptism, the Catechism of the Council of Trent says explicitly, that the Church does teach that the individual's intention to receive the sacrament and their contrition for the sin will avail them 
of grace and justification. Now, if this man or woman, I don't know who it is, uh, denies that, they're denying a teaching of the church. And um, they, um, that I, I would necessarily refuse to give them uh, Holy Communion. I would necessarily refuse to absolve them because, um, I mean, it can be shown to them in black and white uh, that this is, in fact, the teaching of the Church, the consistent teaching of the Catholic Church. Admittedly, there are those who take the, the idea of baptism of desire and they expand it to the point where it becomes meaningless, where it applies to everyone under all circumstances, and it's not what the Church teaches. So one can falsify the teaching, too, yeah, and, um, and uh, also basically destroy the teaching. But the solution is not to deny the teaching of the Church, because others are distorting it. The solution is to examine exactly what the teaching of the Church is and then embrace it. And that's not what this gentleman is doing, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. What about the other traditions of uh, baptism of blood and invincible ignorance? Are those in black and white somewhere as well? Well, again, I mean, St. <clears throat> Augustine explains very beautifully, I think, um, the Church's teaching on baptism of blood, and very compellingly, I might add. <clears throat> but the Church has taught that if someone lays down his life uh, out of love for Christ, then, uh, then that perfect charity that he exhibits in that willingness to make that complete sacrifice obtains for him the grace, the grace of baptism, the grace of justification, the grace of sanctification. The Church has always taught that. St. Augustine, back in about the year 400, spoke very powerfully of that. He even made a very good explanation, I think, in saying that, well, if you take the case of a, a, a man or a woman who is threatened with death because of their profession of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, let's assume that they're catechism, that they're a catechumen, uh, that he or she is a catechumen and has not yet received the waters of baptism. <clears throat> that person has a practical decision to make. Okay, if I, if, I, if I profess my faith in Jesus Christ, my hope in him, and my love for him, my loyalty to him, and I'm put to death without being baptized, um, I cannot be saved, and I will necessarily because of my faith and my hope and my charity, uh, undergo death for Christ, and because I haven't been baptized, I will not be saved. So he says, well, what sense would that be? Why would they not then say, well, I, I actually will uh, deny my faith in Christ, deny my hope in him, and defy my love for him. I will go and I will offer incense to idols instead, whatever I have to do to save my life, so that I can stay alive to be baptized. So now I can have the water of baptism poured over my head, and now I can be saved. Whereas before that, I could not be saved. So really, the prudent thing, the Catholic thing to do, they might say, is to deny Christ now to save my life so that I can extend my life long enough to be baptized. <clears throat> St. Augustine, in giving that argument all the way back when, I mean, I think he, he might have been answering uh, critics, non-Catholic critics back then, 
And he was making it very clear that uh, those who gave their lives in faith, hope, and charity for our Lord, even if they hadn't received the water of baptism, nonetheless, they were, in fact, uh, justified from sin and sanctified by grace, and they would be saved. Mm-hmm. And Father, so the, the church has never, ever denied that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are those who in, interpret certain statements um, to mean that, but that's their interpretation. It's a false interpretation. Mm-hmm. And Father, doesn't the church even have canonized saints who, who uh, underwent this baptism of blood? Who... Well, yes, the church does. Yeah, you're right, Tom. The church does have canonized, well, canonized, they were accepted by the faithful. Mm-hmm. I mean, before the process of canonization yeah. became formalized. And, uh, but the point is that those who doggedly refuse the doctrine of baptism of blood and baptism of desire say, well, if they are saints, God baptized them somehow, somehow that we don't even know about, even by, by pouring water over their souls or something, which, you know, a soul, a spirit cannot receive a sacrament, obvious, it's a material mm-hmm. thing, there's matter and form, right? And, uh, and, um, but also they, they say, well, somehow, maybe they must have been baptized secretly somehow and not even known it, so that when they died, they died baptized. Because otherwise, they say, well, they couldn't possibly have been saved. Even by faith, hope, and charity, they say. The Catholic Church has always taught that if one has the supernatural virtues of faith, hope, and charity, necessary for you know the willingness to be martyred, then uh, they must be in the state of grace as well. You know, the sanctifying grace accompanies the th- these three theological virtues. And these three theological virtues accompany the state of grace. <clears throat> uh, sanctifying grace. So, um, no, the, the church has been very straightforward about this. It's just certain people have latched on, like almost Protestant-like, <clears throat> but instead of latching on to certain passages of sacred scriptures, they've latched on to certain statements of popes or others, and they're interpreting them in, in a false, in a non-Catholic way to support their denial. Uh, now, there is a, an honest-to-goodness, legitimate doctrine of the Church about baptism of desire and baptism of blood. There are falsified versions of these. They've been falsified by the liberals and the modernists, and we reject those falsified teachings. But um, just as with the Arian heresy, you, you, you were not actually opposing the Arian heresy, which denied the divinity of Christ, by standing up and denying the humanity of Christ. That was not opposing the heresy of Arius. It was just substituting one heresy for another. And so those who just out and out deny the, the idea of baptism of blood and baptism of desire, rightly understood, as the Church herself understands it and professes it, they're just substituting one error for another. Okay. And Father, didn't uh, even Father Feeney himself, the great uh, denier or perverter of, of the uh, of, of some of the, the dogma of, of baptism of desire, and he d- he himself did not even reject or he accepted the uh, baptism of blood. He acknowledged right. that baptism of of desire even could put you in the state of grace. Right. He acknowledged that that you could be justified. But but uh, uh, and uh, but that you still couldn't be saved. Yeah. Um, and when he asked the question, well, you know, do you go, if you die in, the, in that state, 
Uh, would you go to heaven? No. Would you go to hell? No. Where do you go? I don't know. Neither do you. That was his answer. It was just... So he was very confused and um, very confusing, right? Unfortunately, his confusion lasts even to today. <laughs> a lot of people. But anyway, we've talked about this before. It's, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that it just goes on and on and on. But if people would just, um, you know, read um, a very, you know, reliable translation, in this case, in English, of the Catechism of the Council of Trent, or even just go to the original Latin text, even, they can obtain even uh, copies of the original document of the uh, Catechism of the Council of Trent, 1566, and uh, they can go to the section on uh, the baptism of adults. They can read it for themselves. The Latin is not that difficult that one uh, with a, a very modest Catholic education couldn't decipher to see exactly what it does say and what it doesn't say, but to embrace what it says is this, well, this is the teaching of the church, and this is what I must believe. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, if we could move on from that, Father, <coughs> to another email, another topic. Um, the viewer wrote in and said that everyone talks about the post-conciliar popes except for John Paul I. He's the one who was in office for only one month. So could Father Jenkins talk about him and uh, any idea on why or how he died so soon, so suddenly? <clears throat> Well, John Paul I was an, an interesting interlude of only a month, as our writer mentions here. Back in 1978, right, Paul VI had died. Um, a gentleman was elected by the cardinals, and uh, he, he was uh, spoken of as though he was more conservative. But that image of conservatism... Uh, it was kind of undermined by his choice of John and Paul, okay? He took the two names. He was the first one to break with the tradition of the church in taking these two names, and he was naming himself after Paul VI and John XXIII, two modernist revolutionaries. <clears throat> this did not bode well, you know? <laughs> and so, but, you know, all kinds of stories went around, Tom, that he was going to restore the traditional mass and so on and so forth. Well, he did something which um, was evidently so much of a threat to the, to the leftist powers in the Vatican that he crossed them, that they eliminated him. And I think it's generally accepted. Um, well, I, I have to be careful. I don't know how generally accepted. But I think there's a very good argument that he was murdered. In fact, we even have um, well, a second-hand testimony of someone who was actually in the Vatican the night he was killed, and what they saw. But uh, in any case, um, David Yallop wrote uh, on this very subject, I think his, his idea was that uh, John uh, Paul I was uh, poisoned to death with digitalis. And um, the, the account given is that he had crossed... Um, well, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of State, I think it was Frenchman at the time, Vio, it was Colonel Vio, I have to dust off the old brain cells there, a very powerful churchman. Um, it was about the same time, uh, or shortly thereafter, that there broke the story of the Vatican Bank involved in tremendous corruption. And the Vatican Bank being involved with the Banco Impresiano, 
the Banco Ambrosiano of uh, Italy, and the Masons, the P2 Lodge of Masonry. They were all tied up together in this money laundering scheme. Um, and uh, it was a tremendous scandal at the time. Uh, and I, they actually, they, it played out, in, not only in the press, as a financial scandal, but it played out also in terms of murder and intrigue. I mean, if one were to write the, uh, the account of it, and there are people who've tried, <clears throat> they'd have to include the, you know, the, who, who was it um, hanging from Blackfriars Bridge in England, hanging by his neck and his pockets full of, uh, I think, lira at the time. <clears throat> um, but he, again, here's a man who was murdered for his involvement in this grand, grand money laundering scheme involving the Vatican Bank, uh, the Institute for Religious Works, <clears throat> the Banco Ambrosiano of Italy, and, uh, and the Masons, the Italian Masons. Uh, so um, this was not simply a conspiracy theory. It, it was an actual criminal enterprise involving um, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of money and, and uh, enormous corruption going very, very deep. Um, had John Paul I discovered this, it's very possible. And um, this would have uh, uh, exposed a lot of people, the criminal activity of a lot of very corrupt people. And it is very possible, just if we look at the timing of it, uh, and the characters involved, that John Paul I was murdered because he had told Vio, you're fired. And that was unacceptable. So rather than being eliminated from that position of power, uh, John Paul I, uh, you know, they found a way to eliminate John Paul I. <clears throat> it also... Uh, does raise a certain specter about John Paul II when he got in, uh, why he would be preferable to these corrupt individuals uh, who found John Paul I intolerable. Anyway, there's a lot that has been written about it, some of it actually very reliable. And um, so anybody who's interested in this can certainly uh, begin to do some research of his own on the subject. <laughs> But there's no doubt about it that uh, the very least one can say is that the election and then the demise of John Paul I within a month was extremely suspicious. Mm -hmm. And in, especially in light of what followed right. very rapidly, right? What was uncovered, uh, information that is undeniable. Uh, so anyway, um, okay. but no, I don't think John Paul I was a reformer in the sense of wanting to restore the traditional Catholic faith. <clears throat> if he was a reformer in any sense, it might have been that he wanted to reform the Vatican finances because he was privy to information that was very scandalous. Mm -hmm. And therefore he had to be eliminated. Okay, wow. And the uh, next email, this viewer says, uh, in regards to St. Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians, he exhorts his listeners not to despise prophecy. I have always understood that to mean prophecy post the Apostolic Father's time to the present. For example, Our Lady of La Salette, Our Lady of Good Success, or Fatima. 
as well as the very pious saints and mystics. Do I understand this correctly, Father? Well, when St. Paul made that statement, despise not prophecy, was he talking about the era that this man is identifying there? He says, I always understood that to mean these later prophecies. Mm -hmm. And I think he's um, stretching the words of St. Paul, you know, to say that St. Paul was referring to the future prophecies of the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. <clears throat> I don't, I'm not so sure we can actually assume that that's what St. Paul had in mind when he said that. I think it's very clear from the context of what St. Paul said that he was just saying, do not despise and reject the very notion and the concept and the charism of prophecy, because prophecy is a charism. It's a special, special um, power given by the Holy Ghost, you know, to speak the truth in regard to the future in particular, right? Uh, we speak of the prophets, and there were prophets in so far as they spoke for God, not just that they talked about the future. Uh, we think of prophecy mostly as foretelling future things. <laughs> but really the role of the prophet was to speak for God about the present things that are happening now and how God judges these things. And what is the right thing to do here and now? Now that doesn't mean the prophets did not speak of future things. They did. Uh, and sometimes their prophecy of the future was, uh, especially in light of them, the unfolding events that happened, would be considered to be an endorsement from heaven of what they were saying at the time. But the, the greatest prophet, of course, is our Lord himself, because he came as God and man and spoke for God, God speaking on his own behalf, you know, through a human mouth that of our Lord. Um, so we refer to our Lord as the prophet, the priest, and the king, right? From which all other prophets, priests, and kings derive their, their, their role, their function, right? Um, so Catholics would never despise prophecy, even as St. Paul said. Um, but the Catholic Church has always advised us to be very circumspect, too, as St. Paul did in the, uh, in the epistle of yesterday, or two days ago, right? Um, which we, ha we have to be very circumspect and very uh, prudent. Uh, we certainly accept that there is a charism of the Holy Ghost involving true prophecy, where people are inspired to speak the words of God on behalf of God to communicate to us, right? And that God actually sends messengers from heaven. We have friends there, right? The saints in heaven, notably our Blessed Lady, most of all. And God does send them to speak to us. Um, but... Um, Again, I, I can't say, I say we have to be careful uh, about where, what we accept as prophecy these days, because there are many false prophets, and our Lord tells us that especially toward the latter times of the world's history, there will be many false prophets and false Christs, so we have to be very careful. And uh, we don't have really the guidance of the church right now, uh, because the voice of the magisterium has been basically invaded, seized, hijacked, uh, falsified by modernists, right? So we don't have that guidance now either. So all the more reason, we have to be very, very careful, very circumspect. Nonetheless, throughout the centuries, the church has 
tells us, told us that there are uh, private revelations that are credible, they're worthy of belief. They do not in any way contradict Catholic teaching. And they show every sign of being, indeed, from heaven. And so the Church doesn't say you must believe these things to be a Catholic, but she does tell us, tell us that in all prudence uh, and piety, uh, these, the message here is worthy of belief and is cons consistent with Catholic teaching. As with Fatima, as with Lourdes, as with La Salette. Um, so, I mean, I would agree with the gentleman if his point is we must be open to the value of prophecy. Uh, I would say, yes, of course, you know, it's a very Catholic mm -hmm. approach. Was St. Paul actually thinking in terms of the prophecies that would unfold in the future generations, the future decades, centuries? I don't know. <clears throat> I think his message was be open to the fact that there is prophecy and the Holy Ghost does inspire uh, people, good people, holy people here on earth to speak on his behalf. And uh, God does send saints from heaven even to speak to us on his behalf. Mm -hmm. And we know that. As Catholics, we know that. Okay, okay. Uh, then another question. Uh, he references one of the Fatima prayers that, uh, that mentions the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, truly present in all the tabernacles of the world. And he asks, can this be said today, Father, and can this, this be true? Um, can this be said of Novus Ordo churches? Well, when we say, when we refer to the body and blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ present in all the tabernacles of the world, we're obviously not referring to just tabernacles as boxes, wherever they are. I mean, you've got tabernacles that are in churches, you've got tabernacles that are in non-Catholic churches, you've got tabernacles that are in warehouses, you've got tabernacles that are in antique shops, right? And so obviously, you know, you're not saying, well, you know, the body and blood of Christ is present in all the tabernacles throughout the whole world. Certainly we don't mean that. That's not the intent there. The, the, the idea is, based upon the origin of the prayer, we can say, in all the true Catholic tab tabernacles of the world, wherever the Mass is truly validly offered, there you have the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. I mean, that's the Catholic understanding. Right? Yeah. And so the point is, wherever the body and blood of Christ are present, wherever the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ are present in the Holy Eucharist, we're asking that he be honored there. Okay? So, I mean, um, I, I don't think it's a bad question, but I think we have to understand it in the Catholic sense. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we have to understand in the Catholic sense that we're not referring to every tabernacle in the world just because it is a box made to hold the Blessed Sacrament at one time or another. But what we're saying is, what makes it, what makes it a tabernacle? What makes something a tabernacle is that the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ is contained therein, right? That's what makes it a tabernacle. Can we agree on that? That's what makes it a tabernacle. And um, so in that sense, yes, since we're, we're defining a tabernacle as a, a worthy uh, container, put it, or a, well, a, a dwelling place, tabernacle, for the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ actually present there, and by definition, that's what we're saying. 
wherever the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Christ is present. We want it to be honored and loved, treasured, right, praised, and uh, again, adored. <laughs> One word. Absolutely. So okay. that's the meaning of it. All right. Uh, Father, does the Society of St. Pius V have an official statement on the, uh, quote, vaccines being pushed on the U.S. military and many other employers? A uh, viewer says that his boss supports him in his quest to get an exemption, but he can't find anything in writing from the Society. Uh, there is no official statement by the Society of St. Pius V on this subject. Should there be? I'd like there to be, yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, since, you know, this is the first time that I know of anyone has asked that question. No one has posed that question to me. Do you have an official uh, Society of St. Pius V statement on the subject? I don't. I, I imagine the reason for that is because uh, up until now, I, I don't know anyone who's asked for that. I'm glad that someone did, though. I think there should be, and I'd like to make sure we do. Um, but we'd have to get together and we'd all have to agree on that, you know. Um, so um, I, 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 I'd like the idea of doing just that. Um, I guess by default, in a sense, uh, this program has been this <clears throat> speaking for that, right? Um, I haven't surveyed the priest to know if they agree with everything I've said about it, though. So, again, it's a very legitimate question to ask and say, well, you know, what you've said in the program here might not be the official statement of the Society of the Fifth, <clears throat> but um, uh, it would be good to have one. And by the way, since we're talking about that, I, I am receiving more and more uh, pleas for people who are being pressured by their employers by their schools and so on to be vaccinated <clears throat> and uh, the curious thing is that uh, resident biden came out and said I'm, I'm going to issue mandates he was going to issue mandates <clears throat> well there was talk about him issuing some executive order that never happened there is no executive order to this fact he said he was going to work through osha right <clears throat> uh to see that all employers of a hundred or more employees in America, private sector, had to demand uh, vaccination. I think they allowed also for, uh, for testing, uh, weekly tests in place of vaccination. Um, I don't know what the individual employers are saying now. So, so immediately there was a rush by major woke employers to impose these vaccine mandates, even though the vaccine mandate just came from basically a, a, a statement from President Biden to the fact that he was going to do this, but it never actually put it into effect. <laughs> In fact, uh, there are those who say he could not possibly put this into effect in any legal way through OSHA, OSHA. It's impossible if they could ever do that. Um, so he was basically throwing out this canard. Uh, and all of these uh, private sector companies from great airlines and manufacturers just jumped right on it and started imposing it. And so they took the signal from him. And uh, they're imposing it gratuitously. There's no law to this effect anywhere. There's no mandate to this effect anywhere, except they made it up for themselves. You know. Um, 
But people are uh, now the United States military, right? The uh, members of our military, members of law enforcement everywhere. The saddest part, I think, is the, the medical doctors and nurses, those who labored so selflessly and tirelessly and were the heroes of uh, the COVID outbreak in New York, are now many of them being fired and um, just basically driven out of the hospitals where they exhausted themselves and put themselves at grave risk. <clears throat> and all because they realized that these so-called vaccines are, are just a deadly poison. They're a toxin. They attack the immune system. They do terrible things to the body. <clears throat> Does, do they affect everybody in the same way? No, not everybody's received the same vaccines. They're different. I mean, even if they receive the vaccine from the same manufacturer like Pfizer, the formula has changed over time. So not everybody has received the same chemicals. And those who are receiving them now don't know what they're getting <clears throat> because Pfizer doesn't have, to, uh, doesn't have to disclose all of that any more than AstraZeneca does, any more than Moderna does because they're still experimental. There is no vaccine out there that has been approved by any agency as anything more than an experimental, an experimental basis. <clears throat> there is no fully approved FDA, for example, vaccine and what they did approve doesn't even exist, <laughs> hasn't even been uh, fashioned yet. There are those who say you can go through, e but you can go through the FDA authorization for this mystic uh, potion that they haven't even produced yet, and actually see from the numbers given in the uh, in the release by by uh, Pfizer itself that the vaccine that they're giving increases the uh, infectiousness of the disease by about 400 percent, 300 to 400 percent, threefold or fourfold from taking the vaccine to catching COVID increases the likelihood of your coming down with it by a factor of three or four. And, and this is actually looking at the, the data that is provided by the manufacturer. Pfizer itself and the FDA. So people have every reason to recognize that this is a well, it's it's a it's a it's a COVID con. It is a con job. It's a COVID con jab. It's just a COVID con con job. It's a COVID COVID con jab. And the vaccines that they're 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 trying to stick at everybody don't even apply to COVID-19, no, <clears throat> because they've moved on to the variants, and the variants have been produced in the bodies of those who've been vaccinated. The bodies of those who've been vaccinated have been like little little laboratories, little, little petri dishes, little uh, uh, kind of incubators for all of these uh, variants. That's where they've been produced, and the viral load of those who've received the vaccines has been shown in studies to be not 250% greater, but 250 times the viral load of others. They're actually, they're actually, well, in, in many cases, asymptomatic transmitters of this disease. The very thing that we were warned about at the very beginning, back in 2019, as the worst possible scenario. These vaccines are turning people into exactly that, asymptomatic, transmitters of the disease. 
If that were true, Tom, what would you expect? You'd expect wherever you had the highest rate of vaccination, you'd have the highest number of cases. Wherever you have the highest number of people vaccinated, percentage-wise, you'd have the highest case number of cases of COVID infection. And that's exactly what they're saying. They're seeing that in Israel. They're seeing that in Vermont, New England, here in this own, our own country. They're seeing that there's information on the Internet, which is valid information. It's all coming from the CDC and uh, NIH and from the WHO, <clears throat> showing the, uh, the coincidence of the number of vaccines, number of vaccinations, and the number of cases rising together. In some cases, exponentially, you know, doubling, tripling, quadrupling. <clears throat> over time. And there are people who are actually figuring this out, that there's something really sinister about all this. The vaccines that they're trying to stick you with now, don't even, they can't even protect you against COVID-19, uh, which they say now is basically past, a thing of the past. That's what they were made for. They don't have a vaccine for the Delta variant. They don't have a, a, a vaccine for the Mu or the Mu variant. They don't have a, a vaccine for any of these other variants, but they still insist that you get the original vaccine, even though there's no real benefit to it whatsoever. In fact, it's an enormous risk, especially for young people. Enormous risk. And so, um, you know, there are people who are all around the world now uh, who are really reacting, and we have... Uh, we have what's going on in the airline industry here, right? Pilots are dro dropping dead. Airline pilots are dropping dead who are fully vaccinated. And uh, there seems to be a correlation between the atmosphere, the effect on the vascular system, and them pouring blood clots. Of course, the problem with all this, we have the fact check checkers. The fact checkers are being paid. They're being paid big money by those who employ them to, to spike all of this information. Those who are doing this to us do not want to wind up in a courtroom where the evidence could be, could be presented. They want to squelch the information by their social media and their fact-checkers, who immediately pounce on any negative, any, any, any true information, which is negative about these so-called vaccines, and immediately, immediately uh, just... Uh, uh, bury them, right, under a ton of, of uh, deceit. They're being paid to do this. <clears throat> Who are, who's paying them? Well, you know, I, I, I trace all of this back to China. And it might seem an oversimplification. But I think China, I think the Communist Party of China is the great poisoner of the world right now. That's what I think. The communist Chinese, communist China is the great poisoner of the world, like the assassin of the world, because they want to be the absolute power over all of mankind. I think they want to colonize North America, and that requires that North Americans disappear. <laughs> and um, I believe that they have they have bought their way in to our medical establishment. They bought their way in to, uh, because they have their agents, their paid agents, who are very powerful in our medical uh, establishment here. They bought their way into our universities and our colleges. They bought their way into our research labs. 
They bought their way into virtually every American institution there is. They bought their way into the government. They boast about having their agents in the government. I personally think President Biden and his son Hunter are on their list. Uh, that they're basically almost to the point where Xi Jinping actually is sort of like the shadow president of the United States of America. Somebody is making these decisions. I mean, you see what's happening on the southern border. You see what's happening in the ports of California uh, with the supply chain. You see what's happening with the riots. You see people being prosecuted for trying to stand up for the law and people being protected for breaking it violently, right? And you see all of that happening. You'd have to be very foolish to think that these are all just accidental, unrelated events. These are being orchestrated. These are all being orchestrated by the same minds somewhere. And the, the purpose is to uh, not only cripple, but to actually exterminate the United States of America as, as a nation. Um, I mean, let's face it, with, this, with the invasion uh, of illegal immigration right now, with that invasion, what's really involved here? It's all Marxism. You see, you can't even think of it anymore as my country. This is my country. You're not allowed to think, this is not my country. This is everybody's country. Everybody can come in, anybody who wants to. It's everybody's country. I mean, if there's a principle of Marxism, it is all universal, utter, complete, total thievery. It's all theft. The very bedrock principle of Marxism after they get past the idea of God and atheism, is there is no private property. There is no personal ownership of anything. And that carries over to what's happening on the southern border. You can't even think in terms of this is my country. The word my, you can't use that word anymore. You can't mean that anymore. It's not your country anymore. It's everybody's country who wants to come and take it anymore. I mean, this is Marxism taken to a grand scale. You know. <clears throat> and you have the goods that are parked in the uh, offshore, anchored offshore, the ports. You can't get in there. Supposedly, they can't offload because the longshoremen and all the rest are hampered by these mandates and people aren't showing up for work. But these things are all connected. These are being done intentionally. They're all being orchestrated for a very important reason. And uh, starvation is one of them. I, I think we're on our way to a new Hodolomor, as took place in the 30s back in the Ukraine at, uh, at the working of Stalin, right? To starve out the middle class. And the mandates here for uh, employers of 100 employees or more, and the mandates and the vaccinations and all the rest, is just decimating the middle class and small business. Another blow to smash the middle class. Again, what could be more perfectly Marxist than that? Starve out the Ukrainians, right? The breadbasket of Europe. Starve out the Ukrainians. Sell their food to enhance your power while they're being starved to death. Destroy the middle class. There's no place for middle class in a Marxist society. There's only Bill Gates and everybody else, right? And whoever else, whether they're billionaires, there are, right? Um to be there as their, their slaves and kind of kept in a world of their own making. 
Bill Gates, I mean, basically, he's like the, the Nero, the Emperor Nero of our day. Emperor Nero burned out the heart of Rome, <clears throat> drove out thousands of people from their homes. So he had a place to build his golden house for himself, a palace worthy of himself. They say he even, he even fiddled while Rome burned because he was actually enjoying the site and anticipating the building of his golden house. Well, I think these billionaires kind of fall into that category. I think they're like, they have the mentality of an emperor Nero today, this idea that they are above all this. They wash the flames and the smoke, and it's all for them. It's all their favor, see. They profit from all this. Nero was a little concerned, though, because the people were getting upset and blaming him, and so he blamed the Christians. And so today, we've got to blame. Who are we going to blame? We blame the, unvac the unvaccinated, right? Blame the Christians, blame the unvaccinated, blame somebody, show that they're the ones who are doing this to all us. <clears throat> Cast them as the bad guys and the source of all evil. Nero did that already. It's, it's already scripted by him. I think, uh, I don't know if Gates plays the violin, um, but I'm sure he could learn if he had to. But I think he's playing something. He's playing something very, very foul. In fact, if you were to take this whole scenario that's happening, that's happening right now, and make a, a gigantic documentary or movie out of it, I even have the soundtrack for it. It would be Night on Bald Mountain by Mussorgsky. Orchestrated, right? The orchestrated uh, A Night on Bald Mountain by Mussorgsky. It'd be just perfect as the soundtrack for what they're doing to the world right now because they feel they can. And so far they've proven that they, they actually can because they've got their uh, mindless minions all bought off and, and all... Uh, all marching in lockstep to some, well, the, as I say, common minds behind this, calling all the shots, all these things. They all have the same goal, right? To work to the same end here. Ultimately, it is to um, deny God, to deny Christ, uh, to destroy Christianity entirely. The goal of Voltaire is their goal to eliminate from the world the very memory of Christ. They will not rest, they will not stop. Satan himself will not stop until the very memory of Christ, the Savior, uh, any, any faith, hope, and charity is illuminated from the face of the world. He's a maniac, right? Driven by megalomania, it's pride. And these people are worthy servants of his. But, you, you know, now that I think about it, where where do you recall hearing A Night on Bald Mountain in Disney? Do you recall where that music featured prominently in any Disney production? Fantasia. Remember? Fantasia closes with that. And it's very striking. <clears throat> because it shows the mountain coming alive. It's a demon right, with flashing eyes. And it's a very powerful scene, showing the demon rising up like the mountain, casting its control over the world, you know, and um, turning the, the dancing women as he picks them up in his claws and spits on them, turns them into pigs. 
I mean, very powerful uh, animation there. But how does that end? You know, just when this demon seems so invincibly powerful, and you hear, you know, the 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 clashing and the the discord of the the night on Bald Mountain. What do you hear in the background? Remember? I've never seen it. Father. You've never seen it. <laughs> no, father. There, Not a big Disney. Very faintly in the background at first. You hear the strings of the Ave Maria. And it's very much overshadowed at first by this monstrous music, if you call it that, right? Of discord and, 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 and anger and fury. And, but gradually getting louder and louder, you hear the strings of the Ave Maria. And there's a moment when even the demon hears this. And suddenly everything changes. And you see that he's, he, he recognizes an adversary. And the way, I'm not recommending Fantasia because it's, it's kind of weird and it makes you wonder what they were. Well, anyway. But it's kind of interesting how it closes with the demon withdrawing back into the mountain. And the procession, a candlelight procession actually, of faithful souls singing the Ave Maria. And that's how it ends, actually, with the, the Ave Maria. And now that I think of it, since I mentioned A Night on Ball Mountain as being a perfect soundtrack for this scenario, you know, we talk about the, the uh, triumph of Our Lady's Immaculate Heart, and it seems kind of strange that that would have been part of it, and that's how it would have ended, right? With the vanquishing of this uh, great world demon who wanted to corrupt the entire earth, you know. So, in any case, um, I guess maybe that wouldn't be a bad place to, to end right now, right? Um, but, uh, you know, if, if you don't mind my uh, just pointing this out, okay. Mm-hmm. See, Marxism, whether it's in the Soviet Union or in Communist China, wherever it is, it has as its fundamental principle the denial of the ownership of personal property. In other words, it is theft on a universal scale. And the communist parties, wherever they have been, have been masters of thievery. That's how they prospered. Stalin during World War II received massive amounts of aid from the United States of America. The United States was pouring machinery into, into Stalinist Russia. Communism could not produce anything. It has to survive by plunder, by thievery, by lies, deception, by fraud. And so it is with communist China now. They've got their agents absolutely throughout the world. They're masters of deception and they're masters of thievery, stealing our research, right? Stealing our manufacturing uh, capability, stealing uh, whatever we've got going in the sciences, whatever we've got going in technology, they're right there working, stealing all of these things. Even the vaccine technology, even the gain-of-function technology, they learned from us to take it back to Wuhan. 
and work at it there to produce their poisons there. There are even virologists who are warning us that where they're working on now in Wuhan is far worse than any of these coronaviruses right now. Far worse. And that it will produce mass death if they succeed. They've got to be stopped, they say. But we're the ones who created this. Um, they've stolen technology from us. When I say us, I mean not just Americans, but from France and other areas, right? Uh, that Christendom over years has produced this technology, and now they're stealing it and taking it and using it and weaponizing it against us. But that's true of everything. Everywhere that they take, they take, they steal, and it all goes back to the Communist Party. It's all, it's all theft on this enormous scale. And they enlist thieves in these host countries, too. Like viruses that come into a host cell and take over and produce, uh, you know, facsimiles, uh, as it were, themselves, uh, reproduce themselves uh, everywhere you go. So the entire organism is going to go, it's going to die. You know, it's going to be poisoned to death. Um, this is what you're dealing with. You're de when you're dealing with communism, you're dealing with institutionalized, uh, mass not only massive theft, but theft uh, on a universal scale. very first principle is nobody actually owns anything. The Communist Party must control everything. And they have a right to take whatever they can, get it any way about how dirty it may be. And uh, they find venal people like them. They pay them off, even in the highest echelons of our government, to betray us. So in any case, um, all of this time takes me back to one man. One man. And he's the man who betrayed our Lord. He was bought off. Right? He was bought off by the Sanhedrin. They paid him, right? 30 lousy pieces of silver, right? To betray the Son of God into their power. But little did they even dream that the Son of Man came precisely to accomplish the redemption of mankind by submitting to their malicious power, right? And... Um, you know, it's an act of the supreme act of love, and that's what will triumph. That's, that is ultimately where the triumph is going to be. Our Lady's Immaculate Heart will triumph over all this. There's no question about it. The question is only going to be, where are you and I going to be? You know, uh, whose side are we going to be on? Well, as traditional Catholics, we've declared ourselves. As traditional Catholics, we have declared ourselves whose side we're on. Christ the King, Right? And if we declare ourselves the kingship of Christ, we must necessarily declare ourselves for the queenship of Mary, too. And ultimately, the triumph of her Immaculate Heart. God has triumphed himself in the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and he will carry out his complete triumph here on earth, again, through that same Immaculate Heart of Mary. So that's where our, our love, affection, our confidence must be, right? in the Sacred Heart of Jesus and his counterpart, of our Blessed Mother, His Blessed Mother. I'm going to turn the floor over to you in this way. <laughs> Amen, Father. <laughs> well, Father, thank you for being here tonight. Appreciate your time and all that you well, do. Certainly, Tom. Yep. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. 
Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.